Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3, uh, but I'm actually going to read verses 1 through 12. Uh, So we're starting a series this morning in the Beatitudes, and I'm going to read the Beatitudes as a whole, and then this morning uh, we will focus on the first three verses. So Matthew chapter 5, and I will begin reading in verse 1, and if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 805, 805. This is God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those the, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. As I mentioned this morning, we are starting a series on the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes actually serve like an introduction to the larger teaching that Jesus provides here, which is properly known as the Sermon on the Mount. So if you look at chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, that's the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the Beatitudes, which are just at the front of the sermon here, serve like an introduction to the larger sermon. One author has said, quote, In the history of Christian thought, the Sermon on the Mount has been considered the epitome of the teaching of Jesus, and therefore for many, the essence of Christianity, end of quote. In fact, we recognize that many who reject the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, who would not claim to be followers of Jesus in the same way that we are, They still recognize and celebrate this teaching of Jesus as kind of the epitome of true spirituality, as the perfect example of morality that everyone should live by. And generally speaking, a lot of people have some reference or knowledge to the Sermon on the Mount. They might know that Jesus was the author of the sermon, or they might be able to cite a verse or two in the sermon, or they might be familiar with a particular principle that comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. A Gallup poll revealed that one-third of American adults can identify Jesus as the author of the Sermon on the Mount. However, the same poll revealed that many Americans believe that the sermon originated with Billy Graham, the 20th century American evangelist. So we still have some work to do in teaching people about where the Sermon on the Mount came from and what it's teaching and and why it's important. Well, in this series, as we're working through the Beatitudes, we've entitled this series Discipleship, the King, the Kingdom, and the Way. And you can see that on the front of your bulletin this morning. Discipleship, the King, the Kingdom, and the Way. And so our big theme is discipleship, but then I want to just take a moment here to explain to you that in this series, it's kind of like three smaller series contained in one larger series, okay? 
So what we're going to do is we're going to begin by focusing on the kingdom. This is kind of the first series in the larger big series. And we're going to focus on the kingdom and the blessings of the kingdom. And this will take us about eight weeks as we walk through individually each one of the Beatitudes. Then what we're going to do is we're going to have a kind of a second series within the larger series. And we'll step back from the Sermon on the Mount and look at it as a whole. And then we will focus on the king. And we will consider what this uh, message that Jesus has here in the Beatitudes, what it teaches us about him, about the person of Jesus. So we'll focus on the kingdom and the blessings of the kingdom. Then we'll focus on the king. And then finally, we will focus on the way. We'll step back again, look at the sermon as a whole, and spend a couple of weeks considering what does it look like to walk in the way of the kingdom. So discipleship, the king, the kingdom, and the way. As we begin this morning, this series, and we're looking at the kingdom and the blessings of the kingdom, I want us to look at three points this morning from our text, okay? So this is our outline if you're taking notes. First of all, we'll consider that the Beatitudes are about the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes are about the kingdom of God. Secondly, we will look at the first Beatitude, namely, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we'll look at the first Beatitude. And then third, we'll make two applications. Two applications. So first of all, the Beatitudes are about the kingdom. Now, we must understand that when we speak of the kingdom of God and the way that Jesus is speaking of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven here in these verses, we are referring to the saving rule and reign of God. Now, we acknowledge, of course, that God rules and reigns over all things, But the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, represents His saving power. It represents God coming in His presence and saving and redeeming and changing and transforming and restoring all that has fallen and broken in this world. And the proclamation and presence of God's kingdom marks the ministry of the Lord Jesus. So if you just go a few verses before chapter 5, and you look, for example, in chapter 4, verse 17... You will see there that we read, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus is preaching the kingdom of heaven. Or you go down a little bit further in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, and we read, And he, that is Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So in chapter 4, as we're leading into chapter 5, we see that Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom. He's he's speaking about the kingdom to others. And it's in this context then in chapter 5 that we read that Jesus goes up on a mountain and he opens his mouth and he teaches those that are there. He teaches them. And what is it that he teaches them? He teaches them about the kingdom. He teaches them about the kingdom of God. Notice that the first beatitude makes reference to the kingdom. So in verse 3 we read, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then look at the last beatitude in chapter 5 verse 10. We read these words, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is, here it is again, the kingdom of heaven. That's called an inclusio. That means that the beatitudes begin with the kingdom of heaven and they end with the kingdom of heaven indicating that the Beatitudes as a whole are a message about the kingdom of God. 
It's important for us to also recognize as we think about the Beatitudes and the relationship of the Beatitudes to the kingdom of God, that these Beatitudes that we find here that Jesus is speaking are not a list of conditions that one must meet in order to be a citizen of God's kingdom. Sometimes people will read the Beatitudes in that way. Well, these are the things I must do in order to be a member of the kingdom. These are a list of conditions, qualifications. I must do these things, and then maybe I can earn my way into the kingdom. Rather, what we see here is that the Beatitudes describe those who are already citizens of God's kingdom by grace. In fact, what Jesus is providing us with here in the Beatitudes is a description of what it looks like to be a citizen of God's kingdom. This might be familiar to you in some regard because recently we concluded a study in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And you might remember at the end of that letter that Paul writes to the Galatians, he speaks about the fruits of the Spirit. And do you remember what the fruits of the Spirit are? Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. But Paul makes it very clear in his letter to the Galatians that these fruits of the Spirit are not prerequisites. They're not conditions by which one earns their salvation. No, in fact, the whole letter of Galatians is teaching this truth that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus. But the fruits of the Spirit are the evidence that one has trusted in Jesus and been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In a similar fashion, we could ask ourselves the question, well, how does one become a a citizen, a member of the kingdom of God? And and, And the Gospels answer that question. We become a member, we become a citizen of the kingdom of God by being born again. And this is not something that we can do in and of ourselves. This is a work of grace. This is a work that God does in our own hearts. And when we're born again by grace, we trust in the Lord Jesus. And then the Beatitudes are a description, a portrait of who we are now. Those who have been born again. Those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. Another important thing for us to recognize as we approach these Beatitudes and we think about them in terms of their relationship to the kingdom of God is that what Jesus is speaking here in these Beatitudes, what he's saying here and his teaching is, is, is not a conglomerate of universal truths that describe how the world works. Sometimes people think that about the Beatitudes. Jesus here is not philosophizing about how life works for anyone and anybody. Just universal truths that are true for everyone. No, what we see here in these verses is that these truths and principles that Jesus is speaking of are unique to the kingdom. Think about it for a moment. As we read through the Beatitudes. Isn't it true that those who mourn are often not comforted? Isn't it true that those who are meek don't always inherit the earth? In fact, often they're taken advantage of. Isn't it true that those who are merciful don't always receive mercy? You see, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is not describing the fallen, broken world as it works. Jesus is describing how his kingdom works as it invades this fallen and broken world. And in describing his kingdom... He's inviting us to be a part of this kingdom. But we do have to recognize the values and the principles of this kingdom are strange. They're different. It seems like when you enter into this kingdom that everything is upside down. 
This is a place where the poor get the kingdom. This is a place where those who mourn are comforted. This is a place where the meek and the gentle inherit the earth, and so forth. And Jesus says, yes, this is the reality of my kingdom. And he says, this is real life. This is, in fact, the good life. Life in the kingdom is life. It is life of flourishing now and forever. One of the things we'll need to ask ourselves as we walk through these Beatitudes and we consider the kingdom of God in the weeks to come is, do we desire to be a part of this kingdom? Do we want to experience this life? One way to think about that is maybe imagine someone telling, asking you to write down on a sheet of paper the things that you desire and long for most in life. So they give you a sheet of paper and they give you a pen or a pencil and they say, just take a few moments and reflect on what are the things that you want, that you desire most in life. And you write down a list of things, maybe five, six, seven, eight things. I wonder, on that list, would it include poverty of spirit? Would it include mourning over your sin? Would it include meekness? Would it include hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Would it include mercy towards others and purity of heart? Would it include a peacemaking spirit and the willingness to be persecuted for righteousness' sake? Jesus says this is the kingdom life. This is the good life. This is a life of blessing and wholeness. So the Beatitudes are about the kingdom of God. Secondly, let's consider this morning the first beatitude. And the first beatitude is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see it there in verse 3. Blessed here is actually the traditional English translation of the Greek word makarios. It's actually the same word. So if you take this word makarios in Greek and then you translate it into Latin... The Latin translation is beatus, from which we get beatitudes. So you might wonder, why are these called the beatitudes? It's a Greek word that's translated into Latin, and then from that Latin word, beatus, we get beatitudes. Now, the way this Greek word makarios is translated into English, traditionally, is blessed. But some modern translations have opted for other alternatives, So if you have another modern translation, you might find that your passage reads something like, happy, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or congratulations to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or fortunate are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there are other options as well. But it still seems that blessed is the best translation of the Greek word makarios. And especially when we consider this word in its Old Testament context and background. Because actually Jesus was not the first one to use this type of language. Jesus, we need to understand this, was not the first one to speak of beatitudes. In fact, when we go to the Old Testament scriptures, we find many beatitudes. In particular, we find a lot of beatitudes in the Psalms. So, for example, the Psalms open up with Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not 
in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Or Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So we need to understand that as Jesus is is speaking these Beatitudes here, Jesus is working from this Old Testament Jewish background of what it means to be blessed, what it means to experience the blessing of God. And to be blessed means to be the recipient of God's favor, to be the recipient of God's blessing, to receive His approval. And so that's what Jesus is speaking of here. That's who He's speaking of. And notice in this first beatitude, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Who are the poor in spirit? Well, I think it's helpful to just take a minute before we explain who the poor in spirit are to explain who the poor in spirit are not or what this does not mean. I would say that the poor in spirit, first of all, we should note, is not to be equated with financial poverty. In other words, Jesus here is not advocating for massive, widespread financial poverty. He's not insisting that all his followers must be poor in that sense. However, it is true that God might use financial poverty, and we might even say oftentimes does, use financial poverty to work poverty of spirit in our souls. But poverty, financial poverty, and poverty of spirit should not be equated with one another as though they are exactly the same. One can be financially deprived or poor and not possess poverty of spirit. One could be financially poor and actually not be poor in spirit, but proud in spirit. So to be poor in spirit is not to be equated with being financially deprived. In addition to that, poor in spirit is not to be equated with a spirit of depression. It's not to be equated with a sense, a bad uh, self-image. It's not to be equated with a deficiency of courage within us. It is not to be equated with a sense of worthlessness or that we are without value. Of course, we know that's not true, right? Because the Scriptures tell us that we are created in the image of God and we possess extreme worth and value in the eyes of God. To be poor in spirit is not to be equated with self-hatred. And so we need to be clear what being poor in spirit is not because sometimes I think when people think about poor in spirit, they may move in any one of those directions. To understand who the poor in spirit are, again, we have to go to the Old Testament Scriptures. This is the framework, again, from which Jesus is working. And in the Old Testament Scriptures, the poor represent those who recognize their utter inability to save themselves. And therefore, in humility and in contrition, they cry out to God for salvation and deliverance. Let me give you a couple of examples from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, we read, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit 
to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Or Isaiah chapter 66 verse 2 we read, All these things my hand is made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So here we see from Isaiah, and we could look at many other passages from the Old Testament as well, that to be poor in spirit means to recognize our utter, absolute dependence upon God in all things and to cry out to Him for salvation and deliverance. And notice the promise. Notice the promise for those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the poor in spirit, they will know, they will experience the saving rule and reign and power of Jesus in this life and in the life to come. And does this not speak to the grace of the Lord Jesus? That Jesus grants the kingdom not to the rich, not to the powerful, not to the deserving, but to the poor in spirit. So the Beatitudes are about the kingdom. We've taken just a moment to unpack the first Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now third and finally, let's make two applications. Two applications. The first application is this. I am too impoverished to save my soul. I am too impoverished or poor, we could say, to save my soul. We need to understand as we think about this beatitude in the context of all the beatitudes that this is the first beatitude because in many ways all the other beatitudes flow from this one. In other words, this is where it all starts. This right here, what Jesus is saying in this first beatitude, is essential to what it means to be a Christian. We must be poor in spirit. We must recognize that we are spiritually and morally bankrupt, that we are sinners unable to meet God's perfect standard of righteousness. And therefore, with poverty of spirit, we throw ourselves entirely upon reliance on Jesus and His atoning death for our sins, and we look to God for salvation and deliverance. And this reality is exemplified in a parable that Jesus told about a Pharisee and a tax collector. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, I imagine many of you are familiar with this parable. Jesus here in this parable is describing what it means to be poor in spirit. We read, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed thus, God, I thank you I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, he stood far off. He would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." Here's Jesus' conclusion. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
In other words, the tax collector exemplifies what it means to be poor in spirit. And the tax collector, Jesus tells us, is justified, and the Pharisee, who is the religious man, is not. Another way to say it is that the tax collector and all those who like him who are poor in spirit, the kingdom of God belongs to them. The kingdom of God belongs to men and women like the tax collector. Is that true of you? Are you poor in spirit? Has there ever been a time where you, before God, have recognized your own spiritual poverty and need and trusted in the Lord Jesus and His atoning death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins? This is where it all begins for the Christian. Martin Lloyd-Jones, commenting on this first beatitude, writes, quote, I would say that there is no more perfect statement of the doctrine of justification by faith only than this beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs and theirs only is the kingdom of heaven. Very well then, this is the foundation of everything else. End of quote. So actually we see quite a parallel here, don't we, as we've been studying Paul's letter to the Galatians that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the first beatitude... Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize they cannot save themselves. And so they look to Christ in faith, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We also have to realize that this is the first beatitude because all the other beatitudes in many ways flow from it. But also, we need to recognize that this is the first beatitude because this is where we return in our Christian life over and over and over again. Think about all the other Beatitudes. Are you always meek and gentle? Do you always hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are you always merciful to others? Are you always pure in heart? Are you always a peacemaker? Are you always willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? No, of course not. And that's the reason why we always have to return back again and again and again and again to the first beatitude. We have to return here to being poor in spirit. As the hymn declares, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior, or I die. I am too impoverished to save my own soul. But through poverty of spirit, Christ will grant us the kingdom. Second application is this. I am too impoverished to live for God in my own strength. I am too impoverished to live for God in my own strength. You know, even for those who are Christians who, generally speaking, are marked by being poor in spirit, it is a temptation to trade poverty of spirit for self-sufficiency, for self-reliance. As we think about this truth, we're reminded of the example of Peter when Jesus shared his last meal with his disciples. In Mark chapter 14, verses 27 to 31, we read these words, And Jesus said to them, that is to his disciples who were gathered with him, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. 
Peter said to Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not. He's very confident. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And it wasn't just Peter. Mark goes on to say, and they all said the same. And do you know what happened? They all denied Jesus. Peter, in fact, denied him three times that night, going as far as to say, I never knew the man. Peter was proud in spirit rather than poor in spirit, and he fell. And it's only through poverty of spirit, it's only through humble dependence that we are able to faithfully walk with the Lord. And poverty of spirit and humble dependence is best expressed through daily dependence upon God and His Word and daily expressions of our need for Him through prayer. I have said this before, that the key to spending time consistently with God in His Word and God in prayer is not discipline, but rather desperation. Sometimes people will observe the life of someone who consistently, regularly spends time with the Lord, seeking Him in His Word and in prayer, and they'll say, oh, that, that man, that woman is so disciplined. And discipline is important in the Christian life, and we should try to develop and nurture discipline in our lives. But I would suggest that desperation will take us much further than discipline. And actually, discipline oftentimes is just masquerading. When the reality is underneath the discipline is desperation. So that if I'm desperate, then, then I get up, right, in the morning and I'm, I'm opening the Word and I'm laying my life before God and I'm begging and I'm pleading with Him for help because I'm desperate, because I need Him, because I know apart from Him I can do nothing. But with Him, all things are possible. So, not only are we too impoverished to save our souls, but we are too impoverished to live for God in our own strength. And it's through daily dependence, daily poverty of spirit in calling out to the Lord that we are enabled to walk faithfully with Him. So, those are the two applications, but actually I have one more last bonus application, okay? So, this is the bonus application. And it's brief. After reflecting on Jesus' words here, you might confess, well, I don't believe that I'm poor in spirit. Actually, as I reflect upon my life, I think my life is more marked by prideful self-reliance than humble, sweet dependence upon God and His grace. Let me encourage you this morning that that's a great place to start. A great place to start this morning is to confess and acknowledge, Lord, I realize I'm not poor in spirit. Lord, I realize that you're revealing pride in my heart, that you're revealing self-reliance in my heart, you're revealing self-righteousness in my heart. So God, would you help me be poor in spirit? You see, the only way we get to poverty of spirit is to be poor in spirit. There's, it's not like some people are born with this and other people aren't. 
The way we get to poverty of spirit is by being poor in spirit. Lord, I'm not poor in spirit. Help me. That's poor in spirit, right? Help me be poor in spirit. And as I confess my poverty and my need to you, O oh Lord, may you fill and overflow my life with the riches of your grace. For to such belong the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. And as we prepare now to take the Lord's Supper, to take the bread and the cup, Lord, we pray that you would help us and that we would truly before you be poor in spirit. Lord, as we take this bread and cup, it is an expression of our faith in the Lord Jesus and our need for him that we cannot save ourselves, but that you have accomplished what we could not do and redeemed us by the great work of your son. So, Lord, be with us in these moments. We pray that you would be glorified. Help us to be a people that are marked by poverty of spirit. And as we are poor in spirit, we pray that we would experience the riches, the riches of your grace. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.